a missionary would come. They'd be home on furlough, a fancy name for a vacation. And they would come and they would have their Kodak projector with 150,000 slides that they were going to show you about what they were doing somewhere crazy far across the world. And sitting in those, I developed a sense of what missions was all about. They would show pictures up on the screen and there the husband would be up preaching because only guys could do that in that day and age. And the wife would be there playing the piano and singing and the congregation would have huge smiles. And then you would see pictures of altar calls. And following that, you'd see pictures of lines of people in white long robes going down to the river to get baptized. And then they would finally follow it up by saying, and now look at our church. It's growing through the walls. It's bursting from the seams. And people are joyously celebrating the good news of Jesus Christ on a regular basis. And so I got some concept about what missions was about. What is missions? It's evangelism. It's preaching the gospel. It's having altar calls. It's making sure conversions are happening. And where do missions take place? Well, they take place somewhere a long way away. The farther away and the more diverse the culture, the better. And how does it happen? Well, it happens by taking people in white robes down to the river and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what are the results when all that is done? The results are growing and thriving churches with happy, smiling faces on people. And isn't that what missions is all about? I mean, is, is that your kind of concept as well? I want to take some time this morning to think about that a little bit. And to do so, I want to open up a text that's probably quite familiar to all of us. It's that last section of Matthew where Jesus has returned following his uh, death and resurrection is now with the disciples. And as he's there, he's telling him those last words. And he says the following to them, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But yet some still doubted. Then Jesus came to, men, to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded to you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you recognize those words? I mean, I think we've probably heard them hundreds and hundreds of times. And in many ways, it sounds at least right off the bat that they describe the same kind of Sunday night slideshow about missions that I remember from my childhood. But if you'll bear with me, and we take the 101st look at this text this morning, I have a feeling we may come to understand those four concepts of missions about what it is and where it takes place and how it occurs and what are the results in a whole different way. 
First off, let's think about what missions is. What does the text say? If you go back and look at the text, do you see it's to evangelize? It's to memorize and put out the four spiritual laws. It's to have altar calls. It's to have conversions. Is that what Jesus says to his disciples? Go and preach and evangelize? No, he actually doesn't do that. He says, go and make disciples and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Go and make disciples. Wow. Have you ever thought about that word a bit? A disciple is a follower. It's a devotee. It's somebody who thinks that there's a particular idea or philosophy or action and activity and person that's so important to them that they're willing to devote anything and everything in their life to understand it and then be involved in it. That thing, that person, that action grabs them so intensely that they almost can't do anything but stay involved. And we're to go into the world and make those kind of people. Make disciples and teach them. So I guess what that means is is that every one of us needs to go out and get our BAs and masters in education and go down to the local school and make sure that indeed we are teaching. Well, maybe not. At the time that this was written, teaching didn't happen in formal classrooms and in seminars and in college campuses. It happens in what's called the Aristotelian method. I only threw that in there so you think I'm smart. I know it probably didn't work, but, but let's think about it for a minute. What that meant is one person, the teacher, paired up with one other person, the student, and what did they do? They journeyed together. They walked through life. They did the normal routine things, and as they happened, that teacher began to describe to the student what was going on. The student could come back and ask questions, and together they made sense of things, and at the end of the day, a disciple was made. Many of you know that I'm a bit handy. All you have to do is talk to me for five minutes, and I have my phone out of my pocket, and I'm showing you a picture of a motorcycle rocking horse that I made for my grandson back about a year ago. When it comes to carpentry and electricity and plumbing and all that kind of stuff, uh, there's probably not much I won't tackle. Now, do you think I went to school to learn all that? Not in your life. What happened instead is I had a dad. And that dad, every day when he came home from work, after dinner and reading the paper, would go out to his shop. And when he did, he invited me with him. And on those days when a drippy faucet was happening, he would gather the right tools and he would say, come along, and he'd fix it. Most of the time, he didn't even say anything. He just started to do the work. And I would ask him a question about what is that particular tool or why are you doing that particular activity? And he'd tell me, but it was not teaching in the normal sense of the word. He was creating a disciple. And 25 years later, and probably three bathrooms and four additions and a multitude of tools in my workshop, he's made a disciple. And isn't that what God is calling us to? You go back and look in those verses in Matthew, and all of a sudden Jesus isn't saying missions is about evangelism. Missions is about making 
disciples, about pairing up with people, going through life with them in their journey, and teaching them to observe by doing all the things that God has commanded to us. So not evangelism, but disciple-making. Well, then let's turn to the next place. Okay, so if that's what missions is, where does missions take place? We go back to the text and it says, make disciples where? Of all nations. And so we start to say, okay, well, yeah, Tom, but at least that goes back to those slides that you saw on Sunday evening with the missionaries. All nations means, you know, we've got to go to Africa or China. Uh, We've got to go off to, you know, Far East Asia. Maybe we even go to scary places like Iran or Iraq or Syria or Yemen or Libya. And that's where we need to do our missions. It means giving up all the things that we're comfortable with, like McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Well, maybe not them. They're, they're probably pretty much anywhere you can think about going. But leaving family and friends and neighbors and everything we hold dear to ourselves and leaving that and going and making disciples in those places. I have a cousin. Her name is Sue. She and I are two of 25 cousins that were born on my dad's side of the family. And growing up, we often paired up with each other because we were the youngest two. And while all the older people were doing boring stuff and cousins and aunts and uncles, we would sneak off and play together. And because of that, we developed a real bond with each other. And to this day, still kind of are like brother and sister. Well, a few years back, I visited her. She lives in Minneapolis, or in a suburb called Lina Lakes, up on the northeast side of Minneapolis. And as I was visiting her, I said to her at one point, hey, how about we venture out to the Mall of America? Wouldn't that be cool this afternoon? Have any of you ever been there? It's huge. You can get lost just walking in the door. She turned to me and she said, Tom, I don't think we can do that. And I said, why not? She goes, it's outside of Sioux World. And I said, what do you mean it's outside of Sioux World? She says, well, I have this kind of imaginary circle around Lina Lakes. It's about 10 miles in diameter. And everything that I need is inside those 10 miles. I teach school. School happens to be right outside of the subdivision. I can walk there. I go to church, and that's five miles down the road. Every single one of my five restaurants that are my favorite and the dog groomer and the grocery store and the post office are within that 10 miles. That is my world, Tom. If I go outside, I need to be chaperoned. Now take and think about that in light of all nations. For Sue, all nations is that 10 miles that she just described. For Tom, my nations might be like the following. I have a nation in Cary and Clayton and Raleigh where I have friends, family, acquaintances, all sorts of millions and millions of places and people that I actually go and interact with. And then once in a while we head down to Ocean Isle Beach and I have another set of millions of places and thousands of people where missions can take place as I journey with those people. And then from another whole perspective, I can go to Research Triangle Park. Or I can go to Philadelphia. Or I can go to Dublin, Ireland. Or I can go to Chennai, India, where I have 
uh, people that work with me and for me in the company and customers. And there again, there's a million places and thousands of people where that journey can take place, helping make them disciples. So where's your world? Where, where do you draw that circle? Where is your neighborhood? Where are your people and places where ministry can take place? My guess is, is that most of the time it's not in Africa. It's not in some remote city in Bolivia. It's down the street, around the corner, and next door. Okay, so now if we know what missions is and where it takes place, let's go back to the text again and say, okay, so if that's the case, where in the world and how in the world, not so much where in the world, but how in the world does ministry missions take place so we go back and we look again at verse um, 19 and it says baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit okay finally we're back to a normal kind of way missions takes place we bring people down to the river in long white robes and we baptize them just like it's supposed to now, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I want us to be a bit creative this morning. Maybe baptism isn't so much about the ceremony and the sacrament that we have on a Sunday morning, where our children and our infants and our adult believers who have come to faith make that public proclamation in front of all of us. Instead, think of baptism as being an immersion. How about this? How many of you have ever kind of done a boatload of work and so much work that you're sore? You've been out in the garden all day on your hands and knees. You've worked out for the first time in 20 years. You've gone on a mountain hike and you're five times farther than you've ever gone. And every bone and every muscle and every tendon in your body aches like crazy. And what does it feel like at the end of all that to slip into a hot, warm tub? Oh my goodness. The minute that that happens, every problem just sort of disappears. Every muscle floats, every tendon feels like you're 20 again. It's an amazing experience. Wonder if baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is providing an environment within missions for people to feel completely surrounded by the love of God in that way. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be so awesome? And then it says we're supposed to do that in the name of. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. My parents just turned 93 and 94 in the last couple months. And although they are doing fairly well, they have, you know, not got the same spry step. Uh, Their memories aren't quite as what they used to be. And so they've made me the power of attorney, that legal word. And what that really means is, is that I can go out and conduct business and make decisions on their behalf, just as if I was them. I can go do things with their finances. I can go do things legally. I can make medical decisions about their health and how they're being treated because I have power of attorney. And I do that in the name of Roy and Lois Grunstrom. I don't do it on my behalf. I do it as if I were them doing it. So now if we're going to, in missions, wrap people in the love and warmth of God's love, what does it mean to do that in the name of 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, when you think of God the Father, let's go to the Apostles' Creed. What does it say right there? I, and we're gonna say this in a minute when we're done, but I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Creator of heaven and earth. So when we function in mission like God would function in his name, we do creation. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not too good at making the world from nothing in six days. I'm probably gonna be pretty bad at that. And even creation, you know, I, I, I don't draw real well uh, without a straight line and a ruler and a pencil. So I did some thinking this week and I said, maybe creation isn't so much making something from scratch as it is to making a situation better than when you initially walked into it. Isn't that an interesting way of looking at creation? When we are working in the name of God, we walk into a situation and our job is to leave it better than when we first entered in. Think about the mission things that are opportunities this week. What do we get to do? Well, it sounds like we get to donate coffee and goodies to a local school so the teachers can have a break. Sounds like we're making something a little bit better than we did before we walked into it. We have the ability to have a shower for Harbor House and for the food pantry. Sounds like we're making things better than what we found them to begin with. I think we're going over to make a ramp at somebody's place. And there again, we're making it better than what we found it. And those kinds of things are a bit obvious, but let me give you a couple more examples, and these are real. In our neighborhood right now, of about 150 homes, there have been lots of complaints about our yellow Camaro speeding through that neighborhood at 50 miles an hour. And unfortunately, there's many, many, many small children that play in the street in our neighborhood. I happen to know that this car belongs to the friend of a neighbor three doors down. Okay, so if I'm going to walk into that situation and make it better than I found it, now all of a sudden it isn't so easy, is it? And I've been praying a lot about, God, I can hear your voice, and you're calling me to make a disciple there, and it's in my world, and I know I need to surround them with your love, but how do I make this situation better than I found it without making a lot of people angry? Tough one. Tomorrow night, I'm going out to dinner with an old colleague of mine. And that colleague is one of those people that you've probably worked with yourselves, where they're a little bit cagey. You're never quite sure what their motivation is, but you know they're pretty self-serving, they're really political, and if they ever get a chance, they're gonna put a knife in your back. Now, I don't know why he called me up out of the blue. I have no idea what he wants to talk to me about. But when I eat with him tomorrow night, am I not being called to disciple and make a disciple? Am I not being called in my world to envelop him in the love of God. And what do I do to make that situation by the time we end dinner better than I found it? I don't know. I'm praying for that one too. And if you all want to join me for tomorrow night, it's at 5.30 in Raleigh. I'm still at a bit of a loss. But when we do things in the name of the Father, we're creators. But then what about when we do things in the name of the Son? Well, let's turn it back again to the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was, and it goes on to list a bunch of stuff. 
And when you look at that stuff, conceived and born and uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate and died and crucified, buried, raised again, ascended, but you start to understand what that's all about. In almost every case, what's going on there is every action was focused on providing forgiveness. Really, that was the entire focus of Jesus' ministry. What he did was to provide an opportunity for we as sinful people to be forgiven completely and wholly by a righteous God. And every action that he did, did that. So if we function in the name of Jesus with our folks in our world making disciples, what does that look like? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not the best at being and receiving forgiveness. That's probably one of my short suits is probably rather than one of my long suits. But I've got to tell you, when, when that occurs, I read a book a couple of years back by Gary Chapman. And Gary said, the reason we're not very good at forgiveness is because it's really comprised of five things, not just one, and we don't do any of them very well. The first thing is, is we need to express regret. I'm really sorry that that happened. It pains me to know that it had an impact on you. I am deeply, deeply sorry for what went on. And then the second thing is accepting responsibility by saying, it's my fault. And notice I didn't put a but at the end of that statement. It's my fault, but I have a reason why it happened. It's my fault, but there was a logical rationale for it. It's my fault, but it was simply an accident. No, it's my fault, period. And expressing responsibility for the action that took place. A third one is about making restitution. I know I hurt you, and I know that had an impact on you. What can I do to make that up to you? Is there anything I can do now to rectify the situation? It may not go back 100%, but what can I do? And then the idea of repentance. And I promise that it will never happen again. No matter what goes on, I will do my best to ensure that that never takes place. And then finally, the last part of forgiveness is about actually asking for it. Would you please forgive me? Oh my gosh. Think about how vulnerable that is. Wonder if they say no. Wonder if they say not in a million years. What you did was so devastating and hurtful to me that I will never, never, ever forgive you. Contrast that with yesterday at a football game where my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson did something and my daughter turned to him and said, you tell that person you were sorry. And he, sorry. And that's kind of how we handle all this. But think about the power of making disciples in our world in the name of Jesus by really accepting responsibility by really making it right, by really repenting, by really saying, would you please forgive me? And modeling that in the midst of a group of people that rarely can even admit that they're wrong. And then finally, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. When we do things in the name of the comforter, which is the way Jesus described. Because if you go to the Apostles' Creed there, you're not going to find much. I believe in the Holy Ghost. And then it goes on. So I'm not sure what that is. But if you turn to places like John 14, it says, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm sending the Comforter. 
and he will come and be with you always. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit. So this week in Mission Week and long term in your journey in life as you send a card, a get well card to somebody who's broke their arm, as you make dinner to a family that's bereaving the loss of the patriarch, as you do those acts of kindness and comfort, do you realize you're involved in missions? As you donate to the man who's on the corner of Highway 42 into the entrance of Walmart, you're being the comforter, you're making disciples. And even if you're probably the most mechanically uninclined person in the world and you see somebody off to the side of the road, think of the ministry and mission. If you were to pull up behind them and say, I can't do a thing for you, but I'm gonna sit here and comfort you until help comes. I, I don't know how people would react, but I have a feeling they would see something pretty amazing that they've never seen before. All right, we're getting close to the end. We figured out what missions is. It's about making disciples. We figured out where we do it. It's in our world. We figure out how we do it by enveloping people in God's love in the name of the Father as the creator, the Son as the forgiver, and the Holy Spirit as a comforter. But then what can we expect? What's the so what here? Okay, so when all that's done, I go back to my Sunday night experience and I say, oh, I know what I can expect. The church is gonna grow like crazy. We're gonna have to go to two services. We're gonna have pews so filled and smiles and beaming and Keeley's choir is gonna be totally full. Is that what the text says? It doesn't. Look at that last verse. It says, after we've baptized them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all I command, and lo, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. I am with you always till the close of the age. It has nothing to do with numbers. When we're evolved in missions and when missions is accomplished, what we can expect is that God is going to be with us, abide with us, join us in everything we do. I mean, Pastor Andrew almost every Sunday uses the word hang with. I love that word, don't you? Jesus is gonna come and hang with us when we accomplish missions. And how cool is that? I mean, I think back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, and it talks about God walking with them in the cool of the afternoon, and there they are genuinely going on about their day, and Adam and Eve are talking about what's occurred, and God is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that the coolest thing ever? Every now and then when I uh, am getting to know somebody, I will ask them the following question. If I gave you a week free of any responsibilities at all, nothing at work, nothing at home, nothing with children, nothing with anywhere, and I gave you a blank check, what would you do and where would you go and who would you go with? And first off, they say, are you kidding me? That never happens. And I'll say, no, 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 let's, let's just play it out. What would happen if I did do that? And then their imagination kicks into gear and they start down the road of, ooh, I've always wanted to go to Europe. I've always wanted to go down under to Australia. I've always wanted to go to the Pacific Southwest and see those gorgeous islands. And then they kind of turn from there to their bucket list. Oh, I'd love to jump out of a plane. Wouldn't that be so fun? 
and they go down through their bucket list and somewhere after they get through their bucket list and all the cool things they've wanted to do and all the wonderful places they've been and they say, oh, and I'd love to have my family with me and they would, I'd love to have friends or, or something like that. In some cases, they actually say, I'd love to go alone. I don't need anybody at all here. I just need to be me. And inevitably, the conversation gets back to me. So Tom, what would you want to do if you had a week in a blank check? And here's what I say every time. I don't care where I go, and I don't care what I do, as long as it's with my wife, Anne. Now, did you notice what just happened? Every single wife went, oh, and poked her husband. <laughs> and every single guy went, oh, and took me off their golf list. Okay, I'm, I'm not going with Tom no more. But that's exactly how I feel. Having her is all that I need. It's, it's life itself. And in some sense, that's what Scripture is talking about here when it says, and the culmination of missions accomplished is that, lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Isn't that cool? We don't have to wonder if Jesus is sitting next to us, is in the midst of our trauma, is going uh, somewhere else when we need him to be with us. No, he says, look, when you are making disciples, when you're doing that in your world, when you're being creators and forgivers and comforters, I'm in your midst. And that's the joy and the gladness with which we get to enter into this week of missions. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes you turn our world upside down. And just when we think we start to understand things like mission, bringing people to know you and this, your son's love and forgiveness, it gets turned upside down. And all of a sudden now we're called to make disciples in and near our own place by being people that make situations better than they were before, that model and show forgiveness at every turn, and that are willing to go to extraordinary lengths to comfort each other. But Father, we're going to hold you to that promise that when we do that, you will be in our midst, that you will walk among us, amongst us and to give us the wisdom and the power to be able to continue those missions as you are with us always. Father, as we walk into the week and have multiple people in front of us, remind us with clear and loud voices of the people that you have called us to be involved with, to make disciples. In your name we pray, amen. All right, let's uh, stand and confirm what we believe as we've kind of called ourselves to that anyway. Please, uh, the Apostles' Creed is in the front of your bulletin if you need to take a peek. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.